I'll tell you what, folks, it's a, a joy once again to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in the book of Esther. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Esther chapter 2. Uh, this is definitely a little bit different to uh, preach to just a couple of people out there in the pews. And, of course, all of you online. Just uh, different. i got to look at the camera and then look at everyone else. So uh, definitely a little different. But I'm glad that we, uh, we have the technology to be able to do this kind of thing. I think it's... Uh, Something we often take for granted, and so I am thankful for it. But anyway, Esther chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18 this morning. So beginning with Esther 2, verse 1. Hear now the word of God. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadessa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again, unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head 
and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we we thank you for your word, and we thank you especially today for the book of Esther. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would teach us from your word today, and we pray that you would guard my lips, that everything I say would be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray that, Lord, that you would accomplish what you want to do through your word here this morning in each and every one of us. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I was... uh, I was having a conversation with somebody at one point. Um, uh, we were just talking about theology and, and the Bible and, and different things. And, and she asked me, she said, you know, she said, I just, I don't understand why people in the Old Testament, say, for example, uh, the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, these sorts of major figures. She said, I don't understand how they could have practiced the practice of polygamy, how they could have had more than one wife. And she was confused about this. She said, I just don't understand it. I mean, Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, these guys were actually talking with God verbally. They were face to face with God, at least Solomon was. They spoke with God. God God brought them special revelation. And yet, why didn't God call them out on this major issue? I mean, Solomon, for example, he had hundreds of wives. And why is it that God never called them out on this? Why is it that they practiced this? I mean, Jesus said from the very beginning that marriage is between one man and one woman. How could could this have happened? How, How could they be doing this? And she was actually greatly perplexed at this issue. And I said, well, I said, you know, it was... It was the culture at the time. You know, they weren't doing anything strange. It was very common in that day for men to take multiple spouses, especially if they were rich and wealthy or if they were kings. But I said, I think that the main reason why uh, this happened and why God didn't say anything, it can be attributed to the profound patience of our God. Our God is patient. And even when we as his people sometimes conform to worldly culture, and even when we as God's people sin and are rebellious and put ourselves in bad situations, yet God is still patient with us. And he doesn't crack down with the hammer of judgment immediately. He's long-suffering toward his people. And I think that lesson is something that we can see here in Esther chapter 2. In this chapter, the text that I just read, we can sort of break it down into two major sections. Okay? Firstly, we've got essentially a bad situation in the first seven verses, where God's people have essentially put themselves in a, a troublesome situation. That's not a good idea what they've done. And then secondly, that bad situation leads to a bad result. And we're going to see what that bad result is and, and how we should understand that and how that all this works together to teach us about the patient providence of our God. Okay, So let's look at the bad situation here first of all. This is going to be in the first seven verses of chapter 2. And uh, you'll notice that chapter 2 is, of course, picking up right after the events of chapter 1, which is what we talked about last week. 
The king of Persia, the most powerful empire in the whole world, had thrown this massive party to show off his glory and his splendor and his riches and all this kind of business. And then he gets humbled in the most simplest of ways by his rebellious wife. And it just throws all of his officials into an uproar. And they're trying to figure out how they can deal with this, what they're going to do. And so they decide to kick Vashti, the queen, off the throne. And they're going to replace her with somebody else. And so that brings us to chapter 2, where the king's officials say, Hey, let's send officials out all over the empire. And we're going to find the most beautiful women that we can. And we're going to bring them in. And we're going to have this sort of ancient version of The Bachelor where the king is going to then be able to pick from any of these beautiful young women that we bring in. So that's the plan. And they bring the women in, and their plan is to bring them into the king's harem. Now, I don't know how uh, familiar you are with with ancient harems. I assume probably not very familiar with that concept, but it really is important to understand what's going on in this section here. Uh, What is a harem? Uh, Harems in the ancient world were very common for kings. Uh, Solomon had a harem. David had a harem, right? The kings of Israel had harems. These were places where all of the wives and the concubines of a king were kept, okay? But it wasn't just for, like, you know, the wives and kings, or the wives and concubines that the king already had, but the harem was also for training for new concubines and new wives. And so what would happen, this is is not that weird what's happening here in the text, but what would happen in the ancient world is kings would send out officials, right? They'd bring these you know, beautiful women, the most beautiful women they could find in the land. They'd bring them into the harem, and the harem was the place where they would train the women, and they would prepare them. And uh, if you were in a not-so-wealthy kingdom, the training probably would last maybe a few weeks, or maybe the king was in a hurry or something to get married or whatever. But in very wealthy empires, this was a very long process. And you can see in the text here that this process took a whole year. That's how long Esther was in. Uh, King Ahasuerus' harem. A full year. Six months of special treatment here, six months of special treatment there. All right? And so what they're doing is they're making her as beautiful as they possibly can, treating her skin with all the right oils and so on to get just the right tone. Maybe she's going out and tanning in the afternoons. I don't know. They're doing everything they can to make her as physically beautiful as they can. But that's not all they're doing, because ancient harems would also train the women how to behave with the king, how to sit down, how to stand up, how to uh, walk, how to speak to the king, how to enter the royal throne room. Uh, They'd teach him table manners. Maybe if if these wives were coming from another nation or from some place that didn't speak Persian very well or didn't speak the language of the king, maybe they'd have to teach her how to speak the language and so on. So... This is a very robust process, these ancient harems. They are training these women in every way how to please the king. And that's what Esther is going to be brought into. That's where they're taking all of these women. Now, for me, when I've read this account in the past, what I've often thought is is this process of, of finding women and bringing them into the harem was sort of a looked upon in that day as a bad thing. But that's actually not the case. Uh, If you do research, what you actually find out is that being taken into the harem, even though it wasn't necessarily your own choice, it was still an honor. It was actually a good thing in that culture to be taken in. Because if you think about it, uh, women in that day did not have a lot of opportunity to progress in society. 
Uh, the, the glass ceiling was very real for ancient women. If, if they wanted to move up in society, they couldn't start a business, they couldn't run for president, they couldn't do any of that kind of business. What they would have to do instead was they would have to marry somebody who had power already. And, and who better to marry or who better to, to try to get in with than the king of the most powerful nation in the world? Uh, so this was actually quite an honor. And in fact, the king would actually, if he took a woman from a family, he would actually pay that family quite a handsome price for her. So it was good, good for the family. It was good for the girl because she got to enter the palace. She got to live there, have all the power. She got to have servants, all the food she could want, all the special treatment. This is a major step up in ancient society to be brought into a harem. This is not really a punishment. Uh, this is actually something that women would, would seek because they wanted to move up in society and they wanted comfort and security in the midst of an ancient world that, you know, life was hard in the ancient world. If you could live in the palace, that's a good deal. That's a real good deal. And so that's the harem. That's the context that we need to understand for what Esther is being brought into here. Now, in verse 5, then, we get introduced to the, uh, the two main characters of the story of Esther, right? We've got Mordecai showing up in verse 5. Now, we're told in verse 5 that, that Mordecai uh, was a descendant of the Israelites who were brought out of the land of Israel when they went into exile. And this is where just a little bit of history helps us understand what's going on here. Uh, you remember that Israel at one point was a sovereign nation on its own. They had their own kings. But because of their sinfulness... Because of their rebellion, God rose up the kingdom of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, and he sent them into Israel and conquered the land. And what Nebuchadnezzar did was he took the people of Israel, and he pulled them out of the land of Canaan, and then he brought them to the kingdom of Babylon. And they were in exile there for 70 years. Uh, they were not in the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. Uh, so this was a massive massive problem for God's people. So you have this whole generation die off, a new generation uh, rises up, and then while Babylon was the most powerful kingdom when it took Israel, there was another kingdom that came along and took Babylon, and that was the kingdom of Persia, who the king Ahasuerus is king of, of course. And Persia, when it came along, conquered Babylon, and about a year after it conquered Babylon, the king of Persia at the time, Cyrus the Great, issued a decree that allowed the people of Israel who were still living in the Babylon Persia Empire to go back to Israel. Now, they'd still be under the authority of Persia because Persia had conquered all that land, but they would let the Israelites leave their exile and go back to Canaan. And we're told in Ezra that uh, a number of Israelites did that. 42,000 came back with Ezra to go and reinstall the temple, rebuild Jerusalem. This is the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zechariah and Haggai and all those guys. They're reestablishing Israel, rebuilding the temple, instituting the sacrificial system, uh, establishing the priesthood, all this kind of stuff because they've been missing it for a couple generations. And now this is when they are uh, going to reinstall Israelite worship. That's a big deal. But here's the thing. Not all Israelites went back. Not all of them did. In fact, a lot of them stayed in Persia. A lot of the Jews remained in that pagan nation because they were comfortable there. Uh, they didn't think they needed to go back and worship the one true God. 
you know, go back and hear Ezra read the law and give his preaching there. Now, they were content to live in the world. They were content to live in a pagan culture. That's where they grew up. That's where they were comfortable at. And in fact, what we actually see in our text here is that Mordecai and Esther uh, are among those Jews who remained in Persia. And what's fascinating in the text here is that you'll notice the names Mordecai and Esther. If you have a study Bible, it will probably point out to you that those names are not Hebrew names, even though these are Hebrew people. Uh, rather, I mean, we were even told uh, Esther's Hebrew name is Hadessa. But that's not the name that the author uses to refer to Esther. It's gonna, not going to call her Hadessa. It's going to call her Esther. Because the word Esther comes from the Babylonian word Estar, which is a Babylonian goddess name. And Mordecai's name comes from the name Marduk, which is one of the chief Babylonian deities. And so what we have here is sort of Mordecai and Esther sort of representing the Jewish people at this time who've not only decided not to go back and worship God in Canaan, but rather they're going to stay in the pagan nation and they're going to take pagan names for themselves. And further, when Esther's taken into uh, the harem, she doesn't tell them that she's a Jew. She keeps her identity as a child of God secret. And so this is essentially, folks, creating this troublesome situation, this bad situation. We have God's people who were called to come back to the promised land, to worship at the temple, to serve God there, to hear his word, to worship him, all these things. They were called to do that, and yet some stayed behind. They preferred life in a pagan nation to life in Jerusalem. And furthermore, they not only preferred that, but they actually hid who they were. And Esther and Mordecai are examples of this, as they not only hide their Jewish identity, but they take upon themselves pagan names. Uh, this is the bad situation that's going to create the, all the bad things that happen in the book of Esther, and we're going to see that as we go along. But it, it, it can be a temptation for us to sort of look down at Esther and Mordecai and at the Jews in this situation, right? Because we can say, how on earth could they feel that it was right to stay in a pagan nation when the worship of God was happening over here? That's what they should have wanted. They should have wanted to go and hear the word. They should have wanted to hear it preached. They should have wanted to be a part of God's covenant community in the promised land. They should have wanted him. But the ironic thing is that God's people have struggled with this in all of history. I mean, just look at the nation of Israel as a whole in general. Israel itself was supposed to be in the world but not of the world, and yet they did a pretty good job of being in the world and of the world. Uh, they constantly were assimilating into the Canaanite cultures around them, and it corrupted them. Esther and Mordecai are essentially doing the same thing here. The text is hinting at this reality. But it's not just you know, ancient Israel and the Jews and the post-exilic community here that do this. God's people today have a tendency to do this too. I mean, we have a tendency to do this. Where we like to assimilate into the culture around us. Where we like maybe even to take pagan names for ourselves. We sometimes have this issue. Maybe it's with respect to the way that we talk. As uh, Dr. Hayes was preaching about last Sunday evening, sometimes Christians can assimilate into the culture in terms of our language and foul talk and taking God's name in vain and all this kind of business. 
Sometimes we can do that. And in that sense, we're taking for ourselves a pagan name because what we're saying to the world around us is that we're not any different. We keep our identity as a child of God hidden. That's not what God's people are called to do. We're called not to live in Persia, but we're called to live in Jerusalem. That's what we are called to. So this is a temptation for God's people of all time. But in this situation, in this text here, this situation of God's people assimilating into the Persian culture is, a, is the bad situation, all right, that's now going to produce a really a, quite a shocking result to any ancient Jewish reader who's reading this text. And that comes to us here in the bad situation, which is verses 8 and following to the end here. This is the bad result that happens as a result of this bad situation. Okay, So in verse 8, we have, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel, excuse me, uh, so when uh, the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And then in verse 10, right, this is where we see, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And this is because Mordecai is shrewd, right? He's involved in the leadership of Persia. He knows his way in and out of the palace, and he knows Esther's not going to have any success in this situation, being taken into the harem. She's not going to have any success becoming the potential queen of Persia if she tells them her true identity. So she needs to pretend to be Persian. She needs to pretend to be part of this culture and work her way up the ladder. And we can see that Esther actually does this. As she goes through this process of of being uh, trained in the harem, she is working hard to do this. She is winning favor in the eyes of everyone. And further, in verse 15, notice this. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter... To go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. This is not just because she's beautiful. Okay? She's winning favor because she is being careful to do what her coaches in the harem are telling her to do to be the most successful that she can be. You, you remember, uh, we read a moment ago in the uh, preceding verses that when the women... When it was their turn to go into the king, all right, when they would go to him in the evening and leave in the morning, you know what's happening there. You can fill in the blanks. When they would go and do this, they were able to bring whatever they wanted, whatever they thought would please the king, whatever they thought would give them the most uh, success in this endeavor to try to win his heart. They were allowed to bring whatever they wanted. And here Esther, when she comes, she listens to the advice of her coach. And she brings what Haggai told her to bring, what he thought would be the most successful means to win the king's heart. So Esther's not sandbagging it. You know, sometimes when you're you know, at a sixth grade football game, it's pretty easy to tell which kids out there don't want to be playing, right? You can uh, pay attention to that. You can see they're not very aggressive. They're not going after the ball, that sort of thing. Uh, Esther's not like one of those sixth grade kids who doesn't want to be on the football field. Esther's working here. She's aggressive. She's being wise and shrewd, listening to her coaches, and she's successful. And so she goes to the king in the evening. She woos him in the night. And the next morning, the king crowns her, and she's successful. And she becomes the next queen.
queen of Persia. Any first, uh, not, uh, not first century, but any, what is this written, fourth century? Any fourth century BC reader here, any Jewish reader who came to this text and read this would be shocked at what's happening. We have a young Jewish girl hiding her identity as a child of God, going into the king of Persia's harem, working her tail off, and then becoming the queen of a pagan nation. And that's, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. Compare this with the book of Daniel. Now, in our, uh, in our English Bibles, if you look at the order of the books in the Old Testament, right, the, the books are ordered sort of chronologically. Uh, they're ordered in terms of, like, the history. And so you have Esther showing up in the historical books section of the English Bibles. And that's great. But if you look at the, the ancient Hebrew Bible, right, the, the Bible that was, you know, the original language and so on, the ancient Hebrews actually ordered their Bible a little bit differently than we do. And this is actually the Bible that Jesus had in his day that he refers to. But the way that the books were ordered in the ancient Hebrew Bible was this. Esther and Daniel, those two books actually come almost at the very end of the Old Testament. And they come in the section called the Ketuvim, or the writings. And in the writings section, that part of the Hebrew Bible is designed to teach God's people how to live in the world. To teach them how to live in exile. And Daniel and Esther are together in that section because they are both designed to teach God's people how to live in the world. But the difference is, the book of Daniel presents an ideal, whereas the book of Esther presents a flawed situation that God uses positively in the end. Just compare for a second. Daniel and Esther, right, they're both taken into the king's palace. Daniel into Nebuchadnezzar's palace, Esther into the king of Persia's palace. But what does Daniel do? Right? When he gets assigned a Babylonian name, the text never refers to Daniel according to his Babylonian name, at least not the majority of the time. It refers to Daniel according to his Hebrew name. And further, when Daniel is presented with opportunities to advance in the Babylonian society, Daniel says, no, I'm not going to do those kinds of things. I'm going to follow the law of God. I'm not going to hide my identity as a child of God. I'm going to make it very clear. I will not obey you, O king. And then when Daniel's friends come up, they say the same thing, and they end up in the fiery furnace. That's very different than what Esther does. When Esther is taken into the palace, she uses her Babylonian name, she hides her identity, and she climbs the ladder of worldly success. It's very different. In Daniel... Daniel's the ideal of how to live in the world. The ideal of how to live in exile for God's people. Esther is not yet. Esther reveals a, a flawed human being at this point. And what I think is so amazing about this passage, especially in light of what's going to happen in the rest of the book, is that we can see that God's providence, and particularly his Patient providence with his people is at work. Because God is going to use this flawed person, this person who's afraid to reveal her identity as a child of God, God is going to use this person to save his people from danger and from evil later in this book. And it's here where we see the patient providence of God 
You know, Jacob, going back to my uh, opening illustration, Jacob had four wives. He had Rachel, he had Leah, and then their two maidservants. He had four wives. It's a pretty bad situation. It's a sinful situation. And yet God, in his patient providence, brought the 12 tribes of Israel out of those four wives of Jacob. You see, sin is sin. It's, it's never excused. But when we sin as God's people, right, God is so patient with us because he is using everything that we do, everything that we should have done, everything we did but we shouldn't have done. He's using all of that according to his sovereign plan. And God is patient to bring that plan about. Right? He is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Daniel presents an ideal of how to live in the world. Esther presents a little bit more of the reality, the the thing that we struggle with. When we sin, it's real sin. We are accountable for that. But God is so patient with us, and he's patient because of his mercy and his grace. He is working out his plan, and he is patient with us as believers only for the blood of Jesus Christ. Because it is because of the salvation that Jesus accomplished for us that that sin that we commit is not something that's going to condemn us ultimately. It's not something that's going to land us in eternal punishment. But because Jesus took our punishment for us, he was punished in our place. And we are innocent before God. Our sin is real, but it was punished for us, and we are forgiven. And God is going to use everything that we do, everything that we don't do, everything we should do, everything we should have done, everything we shouldn't have done. All of this God is using in his providential plan. And he's doing it because he is patient with us. And we're going to see how this lesson works its way out throughout the rest of the book of Esther in future weeks. Let's pray as we close this morning and thank our God for being so patient with us. Oh God, we rejoice this morning that uh, you don't fly off the handle in rage whenever we do something wrong. No, God, you are patient with us. So patient, so merciful, so gracious. God, we don't deserve your patience. God, we at times so often are so at home in Persia. And we so often feel more comfortable taking for ourselves pagan names rather than your name. God, we pray that you would give us boldness, Lord. Forgive us for our assimilation to the world. Forgive us for being more comfortable with the world than with you. God, draw us to yourself. Help us to be, to be people who take your name with boldness, who bear the name of Jesus with a shining brilliance. And, oh God, we pray that you would remind us each and every day when we sin, you remind us of your patience and your grace and your mercy that you offer to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh God, we thank you that our sins are forgiven and that our sins are atoned for. And we pray that you would work 
deep faith and trust in these great truths in our hearts. We pray all of these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.